Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Saturday, July 18, 1863, the 54th Massachusetts Regiment attacked Fort Wagner, a Confederate fortification defending Charleston Harbor. The assault began at about 7.45 p.m. Within two hours of the 624 men who made the attack, 54 were killed, 149 were wounded, 76 taken prisoner, half the regiment killed, wounded, or captured. But Fort Wagner was not the beginning of the story of the 54th Massachusetts Infantry, nor its end. The complete story of both regiment and the men who formed it is told by Ray Anthony Shepard in his book, Now or Never, 54th Massachusetts Infantry's War to End Slavery, written for middle readers, but as one reviewer wrote, an enlightening read for adults as well. Ray Shepard has been both a teacher and an editor. This is his first book of creative nonfiction. Ray, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. Um, this is a great book. Uh, as the reviewer said, it's uh, it can be read by all levels of readers with a great deal of... I mean, it, it's it's an experience to read it. It's, really, it's a really great book. Um, let's begin. You focus in particular on two men. Um, and I'm interested in teasing out their background and expl- and also uh, understanding why you picked them. Um, you begin with uh, with a speech by a one one Stevens, Alexander Stevens. You begin uh, by describing the cornerstone speech, uh, which I should say parenthetically, I always have students read when I teach U.S. history. I think it's one of the most important American speeches, actually. It is like a synthesis of 40 years of the development of white supremacy. Um, and Stevens kind of gives the history of that uh, in, in a proving way. This is, uh, this is explaining why slavery is the cornerstone of the Confederacy. Um, you describe that and then you sort of move the camera to Philadelphia to George E. Stevens. So who's George E. Stevens and how does he enter into your story? Well, George S. Stevens is um, is born in Philadelphia. He's a sort of a second generation uh, free black. His parents were freed in. They were originally from the Virginia area, from Virginia, and moved in I think 1831, uh, right after after the Nat Turner revolt. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was um, safer for them to raise their to to move north to Philadelphia. Philadelphia, of course, was the being close to Virginia had the, a large African American population, both uh, fugitives and free African Americans. A year after his parents arrived, uh, George Stevens was born in 1832. Um, he faced. Uh, many of the uh, most of the issues that free African Americans faced in the North, that is, um, there was uh, a, this sense of racial, what I call racial arrogance, uh, or you could today we would call say white supremacy. Supremacy. Um, there were no high schools for African American uh, students or children. Uh, job opportunities were severely limited, etc. Mm-hmm. So he grew up in he grew up in that environment. Yet he was his parents were li- literate. He he was uh, literate as well, and um, eventually attended a eventually attended a Quaker school for high schools and um, became educated and became intellectual, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. uh, arguing uh, what's the future for African-Americans in America. Um, at this time, we have the colonialization effort being ramped up once again. And um, so I'm, I'm going on too long, but... No, uh, sir. 
But so what we have is a free African-American raised in a northern city of brotherly love, but is discriminated against. There were some in his lifetime before he's out of high school. There are, are at least five race riots in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, in which the black communities are, are destroyed. Yeah. Um, Philadelphia is, um, we, we don't think of it this way, but Philadelphia is a border city in terms of yes. slavery. Delaware is a slave state, um, right. amaz- amazingly enough from our p- current perspective. Maryland is a slave state. Uh, Philadelphia is the center of, of Quakers who are the first really organized abolitionists in the Atlantic world. Um, they... Uh, have schools for uh, blacks. They have an anti-slavery, but of course, not everyone in Philadelphia is a Quaker. Right. Uh, and so there are always uh, the tensions that you see, like with the Irish draft riots, there are mm-hmm. these riots begin because uh, there's always this suspicion that uh, freed blacks are going to come and take away all the jobs. Right. So it's a, it's really an anti-immigrant <laughs> and uh, combined with race uh, sort of symptom. Yes, and, and that was the environment which he, he, he was raised in. At the same time, he's, a, you know, he's, for lack of a better word, we'll, we'll call him an, an intellectual. Yeah. He helps start the uh, Banneker Society or Institute where it's basically young black, free black men are getting together talking about the critical issues of the day that affect their lives. Um, at some point, he is overheard of someone from the Anglo-African newspaper is in the audience, likes what uh, George Stevens is saying, asks him to uh, start writing uh, letters for the uh, for the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And that continues at the time that uh, they go off to war, the Civil War begins. We, we should also mention, I mean, the, I love the Banneker Institute uh, thing. It, that's a very Philadelphian thing. It's like uh, Franklin and his societies for young men of yes. self-improvement. It's part mm-hmm. of a, a long tradition. But he right. also, like a lot of free uh, African-American men, and uh, like James Gooding, that will be Henry Gooding will be talking about in just a second, right. um, he goes to sea. Yes. Uh, uh, the sea seems to have been a place where racial barriers were slightly lower uh, than on land. Uh, there are a lot of, there's been some excellent uh, studies of free blacks at sea. He, uh, I think this is important to the story, ends up in Charleston. Can you describe right. that Charleston experience? Because that will come up again. Yes. Well, um, of course, what we have, are you still there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Sorry. What we have is in, in Charleston. There, at some time, there was a, um, a law passed that restricted free blacks who were sailors from spent, staying overnight in the city of Charleston. They had to be uh, they spend the night in in jail at the expense of the ship's captain. He's unaware. Supposedly, he's unaware of this law. Mm-hmm. And and spends days coming and going about the ship, and uh, you know, as a free person, he's he is uh, in in Charleston as acting and behaving uh, as any free person would, and is suddenly arrested for violating this uh, arcane uh, law, mm-hmm. and is spent is put in jail. Um, he's not allowed to contact the ship. Uh, they don't know his whereabouts. He's not allowed to contact his wife, and um, he's on the verge of being sold uh, into uh, slavery. Yeah. And and at the last minute, he is rescued by uh, the ship's uh, officers, who pay his the fine of his imprisonment. So it, the war comes, and he goes off as a servant to a officer in a Pennsylvania regiment but also really as a war correspondent uh, for the newspaper. Yes. Now, he's writing for the Anglo-African before the war starts. I think his first uh, article or letter appears in 1859, but by 1861, uh, when when the war starts, um, as you, black men, white men, or all on both sides are rushing to or men are rushing to their state militias to sign up for the for the glory of war, mm-hmm. 
there, but the 1792 Military Act, Militia Act, prevents blacks, restricts the militia, state militias to able-bodied white men. Mm -hmm. And so black men in the North are not allowed to in the, in the army. Stevens' response is he will be a personal servant or steward to a captain in a Pennsylvania regiment. It allows him to write articles in the Anglo-African about the progress of the war. Mm -hmm. And in and one of those articles, he talks about how the brutishness of of white Union soldiers, and particularly their abuse of uh, slave women, mm -hmm. and and also in you know kidnapping and selling runaways back into slavery. Right, because he's he would have, he's down in around D.C. and then in yes. Virginia when the. Right. the the law is, and uh, that any runaway will be sent back across the lines. Yes, this is at the very beginning of the war. You know, it's the Abraham Lincoln and the War Department are desperate to keep Maryland and Missouri, but particularly Maryland, and Kentucky. I can, and Kentucky. I can, yeah. I can, I don't know about God, says Lincoln, but I need to keep Kentucky on my side. Yes. <laughs> well, same with Maryland because still. You know, um, D.C. is basically, um, there are very few Union soldiers in D.C., and there's always a, there's the threat yeah. that the yeah. Confederates are going to take oh, capture D.C. So I, 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 I should say I was in the Maryland archives a year ago, and just for, uh, I don't know why, I, somehow I came across the uh, voting re, uh, rule, um, the vote totals for the 1860 presidential election. Uh -huh. and, and in Anne Arundel County, um, which is where Annapolis is, uh, yeah. Lincoln got one vote. Uh, I was going to say three, but okay, one. <laughs> I was, I was, <laughs> so it's, uh, Maryland is definitely a Confederate, uh, it's a Confederate wall that could surround DC. That's what so he's very yeah. concerned about that. Yes. And so, um, and so having capturing runaways and returning them to their masters, regardless of the punishment, the slave will receive. Uh, is an order uh, that the military, the Union Army has. Mm -hmm. And so he's he's there able to document uh, these activities. Yeah. So let's leave him uh, more or less at New Year's mm -hmm. Day, uh, 1862, mm -hmm. and move mm -hmm. to Henry Gooding, who's a very interesting, mm -hmm. uh, a very different personality, a very different kind yeah. of individual, although he is comes into your story also, I think, because he's a correspondent for a newspaper as well, or, or his letters yes. are published. Yes, yes. Uh, Gooding is, um, this took some, his story is not as straightforward <laughs> as, as uh, Stevens. Um, he, would, he says he was, uh, he was um, raised in Troy, New York, um, which was not the case. He was born in Bern, uh, South Car North Carolina. Mm -hmm. um, he is, he is purchased by his white father, who was a storekeeper, not a slave owner, taken to New York City and placed in a Quaker orphanage, uh, orphanage on 42nd Street and 5th Avenue, no less. Hmm. Um, he is raised there by Quaker women and eventually ends up in New Bedford, which is a Quaker whaling town uh, and a port. And he goes to work on whaling vessels for six, seven years, uh, doing three-year stints on, in, on his first voyage. And what I don't know, what I can't really verify, was he a whaler or was he a cook on the ship? Mm -hmm. all, all we know is that he's on, on the whaling ships for, um, for long periods of time, and he comes back to New Bedford. For, which is typical of, of whalers at that time. They're there for, they're gone for three years, they come back, they hang around for a few weeks, and they sign up again, and they go out. So he really is a character out of Moby Dick. Right. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, to just take it, to connect the, to Melville, yeah. Yeah. Uh, at the Seaman Bethel Church where he is married is, the, sure. is also... You know, a scene from from uh, Moby Dick. Yeah, that's the that's the, the, the pastor who pastor. who uh, goes yes. up the ladder to uh, the yes. to the pulpit. Yeah. Yes, yeah. 
so that he's married uh, in that in that chapel, and um, uh, and didn't live far from uh, Seaman Bevel, and which is um, near the docks of in New Bedford docks. So, so th- that was an interracial church. Well, New Bedford's interracial huh. in the sense that it's a world city. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say that everything is, you know, is it's the perfect, but it's one of and the point I make in the book is one of the I don't know use this word, but it, these words, but it's one of the two most integrated cities in America at that time. The other being Oberlin, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are no uh, there are no segregated na- neighborhoods. You can men can serve on juries, um, children can go to school, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The uh, I think, in fact, Frederick Douglass went there first. Did he? Did yes. He? Yeah. Yes. Uh, he's there 25 years earlier. In fact, he goes there again for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. It is it, it is utopia is too strong of a word. Yeah, but, but, but it's in a safe environment. But compared to just about any other, well, as you say, compared to every other city except or town other than Oberlin, yes. uh, it's the safest place to be a free, especially a former slave. Yes, um, for sure. For sure, yeah. Um, so all of this, uh, their stories come together after the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, why do, why is there a decision to start uh, forming all black regiments? Well, after Antietam and after sort of 18 months of a stalemate in the Civil War, it's very clear to potential enlistees that you can get killed. And so um, <laughs> the number of white volunteers are, is, is, is stagnant and, and decreasing. The, the joy and the glory of being a soldier is is wearing off, and so, so to tip the balance, there's been pressure on on Abraham Lincoln to to open up the ranks to African American men. It's always been resisted because it would change the war from a war to save the Union to a war of emancipation. It, it initially Lincoln and Stanton and others are fearful that it would decrease black, uh, white enlistments. But at now, in, in, as the 62 comes to an end, 1862 comes to an end, and it's very clear that this is a stalemate, they, they have to do something. So they open up the ranks to African-American men. That eventually brings in 180,000 black soldiers, which... I argue tips the balance mm-hmm. uh, from a, just from a manpower perspective, tips the balance to the north. But it does another thing as well, and that is it it stops England and France from recognizing the Confederates. It now it makes it a war of emancipation. It gives it a humanitarian uh, aspect that foreign governments are unlikely to uh, go against. Mm-hmm. And, and but even now, even when they say, "All right, blacks can come into the war, into state militias," no state, very few states, rush to establish such regiments. Massachusetts is the first that is it is state funded, mm-hmm. and to a regiment consists of a thousand men. There aren't a thousand men, black men of military age, in Massachusetts. So recruiting happens in every northern or every union state and in Canada. Uh, Frederick Douglass is one of the recruiters. He, uh, one of his his first two recruits, or his his two sons, Louis and Charles. Um, Stevens then comes back from being a servant in, in, in the Union Army in Maryland, comes back to Philadelphia, helps recruit, and eventually joins the 54th. Gooding, um, the 54th is established in February, and Gooding is one of the first um, men in the New Bedford area to enlist. 
Um, so, and while he, after he enlists, it, the, the local, the abolitionist newspaper, the New Bedford Mercury, asks him to write stories or dispatches about the 54th, their training, their experience on the battlefield, etc. And he, uh, he, he writes re re columns regularly until he's captured Mm -hmm. in, in Florida. I, um, the, the Colonel, uh, Robert Gold Shaw, the Colonel of the 54th mm -hmm. is just 25 yes. years old. Yes. But he's already a professional after a couple years of war and he puts them through yes. rigorous training. I was surprised yes. to find out that he was not an abolitionist. I thought he came from an abolitionist family. He came from an abolitionist family. Um, both his mother and father and, um, they were wealthy. He, uh, uh, Brahmins here in the Boston area, but by that time, when by the time Shaw enlists, he's in New York. Aboard, he goes to school. He's educated in in Europe. He's uh, something of a playboy, um, a, a somebody, a young man afloat uh, hmm. with uh, a, <laughs> not yeah. necessarily with a trust fund, but with um, <laughs> with enormous wealth. And he's working in a China trading company that his um, uncle uh, owns. He's living in Staten, an estate in Staten Island. Civil War breaks out. He's already in a volunteer group, and he's off to war. Mm -hmm. And his parents happen to be out of town. He leaves them a note, and he's off to war as at first as a private. Eventually, he he's, um, worked, uh, becomes an officer. And when Governor Andrew of Massachusetts is establishing the 54th, he needs, first of all, there will only be white officers. That's one of the rules. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's, that is, seen, even though Governor Andrew wants black officers and is under some pressure to have black officers, uh, the War Department will not allow it. And so he needs someone who has abolitionist credentials mm -hmm. who's experienced in, in in army experience or fighting experience and Shaw is chosen. Shaw, Shaw refuses the first time but after pressure from his mother <laughs> he accepts the responsibility and he refers to himself as the nigger colonel. <laughs> he's not so he's not fully comfortable um, with his with his decision, but he makes certain that they're trained just as hard, if not harder, than any other uh, regiment in the Union Army. Yes, and he's in that sense he's the typical um, soldier, officer, football coach. You're given an assignment. You want to win. Your assignment is to win. And so the way you win is by training, 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 and he becomes a strict disciplinarian. He was, uh, in his, when he was in charge of a white regiment, he continues that behavior here. And one could argue that he even steps it up. And there's a complaint filed against him with the state attorney general about, how, about his harsh treatment. Mm -hmm. but, he, but he assures his mother... <laughs> that he's treating black soldiers as the same as he would would have treated white soldiers. He is an equal opportunity disciplinarian. Um, yes. So they ship out to um, what's really the epicenter of, in many ways, African-American liberty, um, the sea islands of South Carolina and Georgia. I'm thinking of after Hilton Head has been taken, um, Beaufort's been taken, it, be mm -hmm. it becomes this, uh, It's you've got the... Uh, People are, are freeing themselves and uh, leaving the plantations of the Low Country and heading to that Hilton Head Island. Harriet Tubman is there. <laughs> um, right. Everyone seems to be there. For, uh, all these famous personalities are there, including mm -hmm. uh, Colonel Montgomery of Kansas, who mm -hmm. strikes me as a real piece of work. Um, he's, sort, <laughs> he's sort of a um, He's sort of like a, a semi John Brown character, right? I mean, he's he's been he's fought in bleeding Kansas like John Brown, um, and now he's uh, in charge of the Second South Carolina, which is another all black yes. regiment. Right. 
Yes, and and John Brown has made the statement that there was only one person he was frightened of, and it was uh, Montgomery. Really? <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's, that's... Montgomery. Montgomery is a terror. That's a high standard. <laughs> yes. But uh, South Carolina, and here's, here's sometimes you, we get confused or sometimes there can be academic arguments about, well, wh who was or what was, which state had the first black regiment? Mm -hmm. it's, the distinction is a state that provided funds, that funded a regiment, mm -hmm. and that's Massachusetts. Right. You had black soldiers fighting in the Civil War in in Missouri. They were mostly from Kansas, uh, and Montgomery was involved in that. But they were uh, not paid by the state, not organized by the state. It was an ad hoc, if you like. One could even call it a guerrilla warfare, if you like. Mm -hmm. it, and and in South Carolina, you had the first and the second South Carolina regiments. But again, South Carolina is not funding, needless to say, needless not to say. funding <laughs> the regiments. Yeah, they're, is... they're, they're, they're escaped slaves, they're slaves who have been recently freed, who are given no choice but to fight for the Union. Yeah, they, they're, they are basically conscripted uh, by, the, by the mouth of other people's guns um, yes, to fight. Yes, absolutely. And not necessarily paid. No. Until the federal government begins to... Um, uh, step in and and regularize if there's such a word regularize the uh, the regiments. So under Montgomery, uh, they burn uh, Derry in Georgia, uh, which, yes. which Shaw is not completely in favor of. Uh, Gooding is not in who participates in it. He's not too pleased with either. Stevens uh, has different view, um, yeah. but that's their first sort of like I wouldn't call it combat, but that's their first um, uh, ex exposure to war, right? Yes, it's their, um, they're recently arrived in, in South Carolina, I think it's two or three days, and Montgomery comes down, and he's, he, Shaw runs to meet him, and he's told, you, you know, you guys are ready <laughs> for some action, and it, within two hours, he's got the regiments uh, assembled, and they're on, the, on these gunboats, and they're sailing up river to, and they reach Darien, Georgia, which is basically an abandoned beautiful little town abandoned because uh, they know because the union uh, army is coming that's uh, the confederates are not strong enough to defend it um and they burn they burn the the warehouses the rice warehouses the timber uh, the cotton uh, the town itself and um it's just uh, Shaw, of course, being, you know, it's, it would not be <laughs> uh, the rules of warfare. Right. And Montgomery's, Montgomery's line is, we are outlawed, mm -hmm. because remember, the Confederates are saying slaves in arms are, uh, are, are, are calling for insurrection, so therefore they're outlaws. So we're outlaws. Yeah. And they destroy. They destroy Darien. There's um. There's interesting. I mean, there's a there's a there's a line here, um, which we can just acknowledge that it exists. Um, Shaw is seems to be against uh, the so-called the colored regiments, uh, the African American regiments, because he thinks this is the beginning. He thinks Emancipation Proclamation and the African American regiments are the beginning of a race war. Um. And yes. that, of course, was Lincoln's fear originally as well, uh, that that's what yes. would happen. Um, that, of yes. course, has been the fear of South Carolina planters since they first started buying slaves. Um, yes. That is Montgomery seems to be saying, well, good, let's let's let's. And there's that's he has there's a no one can call Montgomery colorblind. Um, but there is a uh, way in which uh, he kind of wishes to encourage that with burning Darien. He wishes to accept that and, and proceed. I think much like John Brown. Yes, uh, very much so. And at the same time, he's uh, there's this myth of this, of uh, innate savagery in 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 African American soldiers yes, at this yes. time. African. And so he he wants to release that. Yeah. And and one could argue that Shaw's strict training is, is to control that. Huh. Yeah. 
That's, that's... And, and, and you're absolutely right in terms of um, Lincoln is on record of saying, it's, it's expressing his doubt that it was ever possible for black in, in, in the country. Yeah. And even during the war, he's off, he sends explorers off to Columbia, South Carolina, uh, I mean, South America to identify an area where free blacks can voluntarily go. Yeah. There's also the terrible experiment off on an island off the coast of Haiti, I think, in 1862. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, he's he he continues to think about this is the only way to avoid uh, perennial racial conflict uh, until relative, yes, and, re relatively late in the war. Yes, and 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 what's hard to uh, discern is it may not be so much his personal beliefs as a political tactic. To yeah. to address some of the issues that he's some of the criticism that he's receiving. Yeah, I my my feeling with Lincoln is he always tries everything at once. Uh, <laughs> um, hence his attempt to um, actually his back of the envelope calculations, which he loved to make about how much cheaper it would be to manumit all the slaves or pay for manumission. Then, then prosecute the war, and even even Delaware, with three thousand enslaved people, refuses to do that. Yes, even at the with the prospect of the federal government compensating all the owners. Um, <laughs> when he realizes Delaware won't do that, then he knows that it's useless to do that in Kentucky, Maryland, or, or uh, any of the other border states. Yes, um, but they did do it in in D.C. Yes, the Washington, the D.C. slave owners were compensated. Um. So we're now at the we're now at the the the, the moment. Um, they're back on the Sea Islands. They're at St. John, John's Island mm -hmm. uh, in Charleston, and they receive the task of attacking uh, Fort Wagner, uh, one of the outer fortifications uh, of of Charleston. Um, how did that happen, um, and uh, why did it happen? Well, following Darien, where they burnt the the town, there is some there is some skepticism over the behavior of the of the fifty fourth, um, and so they're put to work loading and unloading ships for white regiments. They're they're basically become um, ditch diggers or or laborers rather than soldiers. This the men want to fight. Shaw definitely wants to demonstrate that he the, the job that he has done in preparing his men to fight, and they're looking for the opportunity to battle. Uh, he Shaw then makes his case to his commanding officer. Eventually, they're put on guard on uh, James Island, and they have their pickets, primarily pickets or a front front uh, unit. And they engage in a battle, and they are successful. They are called then, following that success, they are called to Wagner. And they travel boat, mar marching, et cetera, to reach, finally reaching the other island after almost a day of uh, a day hike. They reach, um, they reach Wagner. The area of Wagner and Shaw wants to again to sh demonstrate, even though his men are hungry, uh, exhausted, have just come out of a battle, he he is still he wants to demonstrate how well he has trained his troops, and so the the generals are looking for. They've already attacked Wagner three weeks before, suffered heavy heavy casualties. They're going to make another try. They believe this time they will bombard, bombard with uh, the fort with ships and artillery and reduce the resistance and then a head-on charge and they select the 50 or choose to ask the 54th to lead um, the, the charge. Mm -hmm. And one of the generals is, is quoted as saying, we have to get rid of those troubling niggers from Massachusetts somehow, some way, and so we're we're going to put them in front. But it is at Shaw's request that they are leading 
uh, the charge. And Wagner is, if they take Wagner, then they've broken, is that right? They've broken the ring around Charleston? Yes, they, there's a belief that if they can take Charleston, Charleston, uh, I mean, if they can take Wagner, Wagner is is one of the key forts protecting this Charleston Harbor. So the idea is the original domino effect, effect if you if you like, you know, if 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 Wagner falls, the other forts will fall. Eventually, Charleston will fall, and, and Charleston obviously is clearly a prize for the Union uh, Army, given that uh, its role at the beginning of the Civil War and its importance uh, to the Confederacy. And then the, the result is, as I described in the intro uh, to the, our conversation. Um, but the story doesn't end there. Um, Shaw and is buried with his men um, uh, in a mass grave yet the regiment survives and keeps on fighting. Yes. Yes, and here's, you know, if for, for any listener who is uh, old enough to remember the film Glory, um, here's the, here's, uh, which is one of the first stories about the, the 54th Regiment. Mm-hmm. It stops with the death of Shaw. Mm-hmm. And that's only six weeks into into the into the um, their their service. Yeah. They leave they leave um, Boston on May twenty eighth. Uh, they attack Wagner on July eighteenth in eighteen sixty three. But the unit the regiment continues until mustered out in September of eighteen sixty five. Mm-hmm. So what I've what I've covered is the beginning and the full term. Uh, of service yeah. uh, for, for the regiment. Uh, and that's really important for the story um, because I, I neglected to mention throughout this, there's this um, growing, the refusal to pay African-American soldiers the same level of whites. And yes. the regiment now refuses to accept pay at all until that's rectified. Is that, is that correct? Yes, and, and that is true. One of the, one of the big promises of, of recruiting promises was you'll get the same uniforms, the same same equipment, and the same pay as white soldiers. Now, keep in mind, this is at a time when such equality is unheard of. So it becomes a big plus for for recruiting. Same equipment, same uniform, same pay. They get to they get to South Carolina. They're behind enemy lines. There's no way home, hmm. and we made a mistake. It's not thirteen dollars a month, but it's ten dollars a month because you're late. We're going to pay you as laborers, not soldiers, and we're going to subtract three dollars from the ten dollars to pay for your uniform. Mm-hmm. So seven dollars a month compared to thirteen. And so I, I was I hadn't realized that people just refused to be paid at all. Yes, and 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 think of the, both the fifty fourth and the fifty fifth. Now some, the South Carolina South Carolina regiment accepted the ten dollars, mm-hmm. but the Massachusetts regiment did not. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind these these men, many of them are coming from laboring uh, uh, classes. Um, they're living paycheck to paycheck. They're, they're joining the army because, first of all, there's a fifty uh, $50 bonus, and then there's going to be this monthly pay, and they can send this money home, and their families at home are are in in trouble. Uh, they're they're they don't have money for rent, they don't have money for food. They're dependent on charity. They're dependent on 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 church uh, churches to to help them out. But for eighteen months, these men go without pay and some are executed for even protesting the lack of pay mm-hmm. yeah uh, during all this long controversy over um, back pay um, is the attempted invasion and capture of Florida which results in the Battle of the Lusty um, this yes. is a, a political thing where is our political uh, endeavors 
the election of 1864, uh, if Lincoln had lost it, uh, the Civil War would have been lost. Mm-hmm. And he is trying to find some victory uh, in order to get reelected. And so they have the idea of, of separating tiny Florida, tiny in terms of population, at least at the mm-hmm. time, uh, separating it from the Confederacy. Uh, that's a failure, but the result is the 54th uh, saves the small Union Army at the Battle of the Lusty. Yes. And keep in mind that we've already seen the, the Union able to carve out West Virginia from Virginia. Yeah, right. So here's, here's the chance in Florida. And, and they set a very low bar. <laughs> if they get 10% of white men, only people who can vote, 10% to repledge the United States— they can bring Florida back into the Union, and in time of in time for the Republican convention, they can deliver those votes for Lincoln. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the fifty fourth arrives in in, um, in 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 Florida, and they're marching across uh, Jacksonville, and they're marching across northern Florida towards Tallahassee with the idea of getting 10% of white men to renounce the Confederacy. Halfway through across the state, they're, they're engaged in a battle. Initially, it's the 54th is held back as, reserve, as reserves, um, but they're losing. The, the Union Army is losing at Olusti, and the 54th is called forward into, into the battle. And they run off saying... Uh, uh, cheering three cheers for Massachusetts and seven dollars a month and they charge in and they're told they're told don't go you're going to get killed we're badly whipped as the retreating other units are retreating back from the battle they're rushing in and they find themselves abandoned Mm -hmm. and in the firefight Gooding is shot is wounded and is left, not for dead, but just left. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the battle was eventually over and the majority of the 54 were able to uh, remove themselves, retreat, he's there overnight along with other uh, black soldiers, and um, it, he's captured. And, and, and the Confederates are going through the woods executing white officers and black soldiers. Gooding is fortunate that he is discovered by a, a white Confederate officer. He is taken to uh, Tallahassee mm-hmm. and eventually put on a boxcar and sent to Andersonville. Uh, and Andersonville uh, is the, I don't know if it's the most horrible prison in the Confederacy, but it's pretty close. Um, what makes it horrible? so horrible and uh what happens to african-american soldiers there are they executed or or what happens actually the african-american soldiers are better treated than the white soldiers for for two reasons one there there are only about a hundred of them and mo- and they all come from the battle at olusty hmm. secondly they are used as laborers outside outside the prison, those that are not wounded. Hmm. And because their chances of escaping, they can't just disappear into the countryside, into the civilian population. They're obviously, because of color, they're, they're identifiable. Mm-hmm. So they are better fed than, than, again, not the wounded, but the, the African-Americans who are not wounded are better fed and are outside working, chopping wood, et cetera, et cetera. Gooding is wounded, of course. And what makes Andersonville horrendous is that it's a fort built for 10,000 men. By the time Gooding arrives, and this is only six to eight weeks after the fort is established, Mm. that there are 13,000 people there. Mm -hmm. There are no barracks. There are no living quarters. They're just it's just an open compound in which you you're left out you're outside day and night, rain, heat, cold, etc. You're exposed to the element. 
the food, there's very little food. The uh, water is contaminated, and the death rate is high. Uh, and there's no medical treatment as well. And so eventually, uh, Gooding dies. And uh, the irony is that when he was in Camp Reed in Massachusetts, prepare, a year earlier, preparing, uh, being trained, he wrote in one of his dispatches that, you know, we'll, after the war is over, we may be shoeless and wounded and our flag will be shot to pieces, but we will get the respect of the people because we have done our duty. Well, here he is. He is definitely wounded, shoeless, in desperate straits, and um, he eventually, as I said, uh, perishes. Um. And without pay. Yeah, without pay. Uh, without pay. Um, eventually, his widow will receive his pay, but he he is never paid uh, during his tour of duty. Uh, two last, uh, well, three last things. Um, mm -hmm. How is the uh, the back pay episode is eventually resolved um, before the end of the war, isn't it? I mean, how, yes. how, how is that done? What change, um, the, the continued pressure on 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 the War Department, on Lincoln, um, and Lincoln's sense that, my interpretation, that it, it will be now be acceptable. I think you have, I always see Lincoln as the, the master politician. Yeah. And so he, he's never too far ahead of public opinion, mm -hmm. a northern public opinion. And so there's a change in, in the Secretary of War, or, 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 and I think an attorney general. But anyway, they do agree to a back pay, full pay, equal pay. And that becomes, and here's, and, and that becomes one, in my mind, one of the, the first major civil rights victory yes. in American history. Yeah. 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 I think that's, 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 that's well said. Um, they, uh, there's also a, a struggle to appoint African-American off, uh, officers or rather yes. than just white officers. Yes. And, and, uh, eventually that too happens. Some, of uh, uh, two of the men from two or three of the men from the 54th are promoted to uh, officers. That's again, we're at towards the end of the war mm -hmm. when these promotions are happening. Frederick Douglass is promised and even though in spite of his age is promised that he will be an officer, but that that is never followed up. Um, and so Martin Delaney becomes the first high ranking, uh, black officer, uh, a, a rank of Colonel. Um, it's interesting. Delaney was an earlier proponent of, uh, colonialization. Yeah. Um, but he, he becomes the major first major black officer, but two, two or three of the men in the 54 are promoted. And also William Carney, um, wins, becomes the first African-American to be awarded the Medal of Honor for the, his role in the battle at Wagner. Mm -hmm. So you, you have this, you know, unusual collection of exceptional men Yes. Uh, at a time when African-American intelligence, morality, work ethic is all bravery is suspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it's um, it's a guy. Your book is in many ways a gallery of exceptional men. Um, they're very exceptional. Uh, mm -hmm. And one of them, George Stevens, has the pleasure of occupying Charleston, where he had once been imprisoned. Yes, yes. And um, which is the irony, because he's one of the first of the 54th to get, make it uh, to uh, Charleston after Charleston um, uh, is abandoned. Mm -hmm. He is able to visit the, um, the area where he saw slaves being, when he was there as a sailor, Slaves being moved through the city from to the market. Um, he's at the uh, slave auction house. He's at the prison where some of the men of the 54th were taken after the fall of Wagner, mm -hmm. or after the Battle of Wagner, rather. Mm -hmm. So he, the the 55th is the 
the official black regiment that takes charge of Charleston. But Stevens is there a few days earlier, perhaps on an unauthorized visit because he's supposed to be a picket somewhere. He gets a boat. He and a couple guys, they get in a little rowboat and they roll over and there he is and he's in Charleston and he's, remembers able to recall what it was like when he was there. Um, Imprisoned, and, uh, awaiting, yes. awaiting enslavement. Yes. Yeah, bottom rail on top. Um, yes. Very much. So uh, let's uh, back away. I, I This is your first work of creative nonfiction, and you wrote it for middle readers, um, which I, I guess means, what, 10 to 14? Um, uh, yes. Uh, well, I would even say 12 to 14. 12 but to 14. Yes. How did you... Uh, at, and, 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 and then I often say, here's what I say. Yeah. It's, it's a book for readers, whether you're in eighth grade or your eighth year at a retirement home, <laughs> because uh, so many uh, young adult books cross over. In fact, adult fiction, 50% of the readers are adults. Uh, and I'm defining adults as 25 and up. Mm-hmm. So... It's a it's what we call in a YA book, a young young adult book. Uh, we don't say twelve to up. It's not, and and the van, I think one of the uh, benefits of YA books, if there's a topic, a subject matter that you want a, to become familiar with in a relatively short time, pick up a YA book. <laughs> on that topic or that individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I, it, you know, we work hard to get the reader up the learning curve. How did, how did you decide to make this your first book? Did you always want to write a, a YA book? Well, I'm a former history teacher, uh, middle school history teacher, a former textbook editor of history textbooks, and I happened to work in the Boston area where I passed the St. Gaudens uh, Shaw Memorial, which is this beautiful uh, de- sculpture that depicts African-American soldiers. And when I moved, when I came to go to graduate, came to Boston to go to graduate school, um, I was just totally surprised by the beauty of this piece of public art mm-hmm. is nothing that I had ever seen before growing up in Missouri and Nebraska. Mm-hmm. It was, um, and I wanted to tell their story. Mm-hmm. So you, this has been, this has been in your head for a while, for a while, a long while. And I've, I retired from, um, from educational publishing and I'm starting this encore career as long as God wills it, to write um, young adult books uh, about known, well-known and relatively unknown uh, African-Americans who, to paraphrase Parker and King, to, who you know, bent the needle of the moral arc mm-hmm. towards justice. Mm-hmm. What um, what did you learn about writing uh, YA books? Uh, it, what did you learn after writing this, in the course of writing it, that you didn't realize before, or perhaps what have you learned from response to it? Well, that's a good question. I I think as uh, what you try to do, it's a question of what facts. What facts do you choose to tell, and what facts do you choose to leave out, mm-hmm. and why? Mm-hmm. And the question, for, the question is, how do you how do you advance the story without distorting the truth? Hmm. So that's that that it, itself is is the biggest challenge. Is you know, if there's anyone who's interested in history or uh, is fortunate enough to be a historian, you you you. You know so much, mm-hmm. but how much of it? What drive? What can you use to drive the story and to, to drive the narrative arc, mm-hmm. and to make your characters believable, make them real, make them flaw heroes? Mm-hmm. That 
that is is one of the challenges. And then the other is, I try to do the book, I'm not always successful, but I try to do the book in terms of scenes. Mm -hmm. Can you put the reader in the scene? Can the reader see the charge on Wagner? Mm -hmm. Can the reader see and feel what it's like to go without pay for 18 months? What it's like to uh, be disciplined army receive army discipline that's so trying to trying to tell a story a good story do you did you uh do you map out scenes like i'm, I'm not literally storyboarding but I, I know some people um think about scenes and put them up on a cork board and three by five or four by six cords and then uh try to put in um cards that connect scene to scene do you do you do something like that are you an outliner no, I'm not. It, it's um, sometimes I wish <laughs> I wish that was the case. And I know there's one writer who's uh, YA writer who's very successful. He certainly he says he does that, and I I have no reason to doubt him uh, because he his books are uh, very visual, and they they, uh, they they do you have a sense of scene to scene. Mm -hmm. But but I'm sort of um, I don't know how to describe it. I'm like. Right now, I'm in, in working on my second book, and I'm a year into it, and I, you know, I'm trying to finish it up. And I, I sort of keep, I keep it all in my head, hmm. and that's dangerous as you get older because <laughs> you're not sure what you what you remember and what. Dangerous you, when you're younger too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, I, 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 I can, I, I see things. I can imagine. Mm -hmm. That's I think that's how that's how I work. Rather than putting it on a corkboard or an index card, I can see it. Mm -hmm. And do you have those images? Do you have like a a, a necklace of uh, of images that you work through as you're writing? No, it's more of well, today or this week I'm going to be covering X mm -hmm. and some magic. That sounds very. Silly, but it it it, it comes to me, uh -huh. and, and that doesn't mean it comes fully polished. It, it come it takes draft after draft after draft after draft, and to to get there. How how many drafts do you do for like a, a scene for a chapter and say in this now or never? Oh, I I don't know. Um, <laughs> Thirty is not unusual. Thirty, yes. But I do it. I don't do a book by. Uh, I, I. It's more of um, a chapter by chapter. Mm -hmm. Or this. Uh, what I'm working on now. I'm. I'm at least at draft twenty five, twenty six. Of of the book. Of the of where I am. I'm. Not, I'm still only two thirds of the way through the book. Mm -hmm. But I sort of. What, so what I do is I try to. I'll do a final read or a final draft or two or three but i'm redrafting constantly as i move from chapter to chapter hmm. it's just it, you know it's as as my youngest daughter told me it took you three years to write 100 pages <laughs> <laughs> is <Yes>. it <laughs> is this the problem of having been a, a, a an editor or is just I mean what it's very that's very meticulous. What are you what are you changing with each draft? Do you do you make this? I'm, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I'm changing the sound. I'm yes. changing. I'm 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 changing. I'm changing the rhythm. Uh huh. Um, and sometimes I have to. I need to go back and, and double check, double check the facts, double check the quotes. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's more. It's more the rhythm yeah. of the words. No, I, you have a great prose rhythm. And yeah. prose rhythm is overlooked, I think. I, I heard a great writer talk about it once, and I've been obsessed with it ever since, um, trying to achieve a prose rhythm um, is the best way of achieving your own style. Yes, yes. And, and um, again, what I'm currently working on is just like is – the rhythm is so important to the story because I, I think that's that's a way where you can capture. Now, remember, most kids, you know, think back, or I can remember when I was a kid, 
uh, in eighth grade or sixth grade. Uh, history was quite boring, mm -hmm. and yeah, and so how how do you how do you make it interesting? Mm -hmm. That 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 is indeed the challenge. How do you make it interesting? And um, I think every subject has a unique rhythm, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I think uh, I can get very obsessive about this. That uh, trying to achieve a rhythm that's appropriate to the subject is is the way into this actual subject. Um, yes, for the reader. Um, yeah, in fact, you think that we talk about great opening lines, um, but that great opening line is the beginning of a, a, a prose rhythm, uh, like the first pages of Treasure Island. Mm -hmm. absolutely unique prose rhythm that uh, captivated me when my father first read it to me. Um, so yeah, that's you're right. That's 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 the beginning of the rhythm. That's the beginning of the story. That's the beginning when the author reaches out and grabs the reader. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Ray, this has been wonderful. Um, where can people learn more about your uh, work? Well, there's a website, and it's www.rayaffanyshepherd.com and Shepherd is S-H-E-P-A-R-D and the book is Now or Never yes uh, the 54th Massachusetts Infantry the 54th Massachusetts Infantry's War to End Slavery uh, Ray Shepherd thanks so much for joining us thank you for having me it's been a pleasure for more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rudat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.